Hello and welcome to the CTO Coffee Podcast. This time I'm talking to Julia Startsev. She's a developer at Mozilla, Mozilla, whatever. Never needed to pronounce that properly. Julia and I, we met at the last Socrates conference this year, 2018, in case you're hearing this in 2019 or later. And she had a very interesting session proposal. She held a very interesting session, which was centered around drawing in negative space or drawing negative space. And I visited or I was part of that session and tried to draw negative space, which is still kind of weird when I talk about it. But it's it's a very interesting topic and a very interesting way to look at things. And yeah, so it was kind of a no-brainer for me to to ask Julia if she she would be interested in talking about humans and tech. And so here I am. And Julia, hi. Hi. Uh, nice to <laughs> chat with you, Benjamin. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Julia Startsev, and I am a developer at Mozilla working on developer tools. I'm focusing primarily on building the backend system for that, but I'm also quite interested in how people code, how people solve problems in their programs, and how we can do that better. Yeah, and in a sense, I guess, coming to the session that uh, that you participated in, I think one thing that I find really to be a powerful experience while while working with code is discovering another way to think about a problem or another way to see a problem. And this was sort of the thing that pushed me to to do this session. I'll describe it a bit for, for people who weren't at that session. The idea for the, the session, and in fact, the entire shape of that session, comes from a line of thinking about teaching how to draw. I didn't come up with it. If you've read the book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, I believe it was written uh, sometime in the 1990s or 1980s. There are a series of exercises there to get people to stop thinking about what they see and start drawing what they see. I took three exercises from that book. The first exercise was uh, getting people to really look at what they're looking at. People were required to look at the palm of their hand and trace on a separate piece of paper that's on the table somewhere the, the lines that they see on their hand. The lines are quite abstract and just tracing without looking at the piece of paper, like really focusing on the act of looking. This was the first exercise. The second exercise was looking at an object that has a lot of complexity, maybe a pile of cords or a tree, and not drawing that thing. Instead, looking really carefully and drawing the relationship between empty space around the object. Not detailing what's in that empty space, but just the contours of that empty space. That was the second exercise that we did. And the third exercise was about building up the volume of these things and thinking about them as three-dimensional objects rather than as flat objects and building up a shape there. Each one of these exercises, from my perspective, had a specific goal in terms of getting us to think in a different way. Because much like programming, the task of drawing isn't limited to the task itself that you're doing. The task of drawing and programming is related to a general mindset and how we're approaching a given problem. It's not just, oh, I'm going to draw this thing and that's it. It's also how do you look and where is your mental focus weighted? 
So usually when people start drawing, like for example, they want to draw an eye, they've got an, they've got an idea of what an eye looks like in their head. And even if they're looking at the eye that they're trying to draw, or they're looking at the face that they're trying to draw, for example, to do a portrait, their brain is intercepting what they see with what they think they see. And people are often disappointed with the drawings that come out of that because it doesn't look like what they were looking at. When in reality, what's happening is rather than drawing what you're looking at, you're drawing what you think you're looking at, which, uh, for example, the eye is sort of this oblong shape and uh, something that's a recognizable symbol. You know, it ties back into programming quite, quite closely because often when we're working with computers, we're dealing with a highly symbolic language and we're dealing with symbols of models of a domain that we're trying to model. Our presumptions and our preconceptions about things actually stops us from perceiving what we're trying to build, what we're trying to draw, what we're trying to code. And that was the goal of the, of the exercise, which was to, uh, to have that moment because as you're going through the exercises, the first one is a little bit, a little bit like, Oh, what am I actually doing here? I'm just staring at the palm of my hand and drawing on this piece of paper. The thing that comes out on the piece of paper doesn't look like anything, but it's the first thing to like sort of get your, get your thinking switching over to really looking at what you're doing rather than focusing on uh, the act of drawing the thing based on what your brain thinks the hand looks like. And then the second exercise is where people have the aha moment. I can draw. Like there's a lot of people who think, oh, I can't draw. But in reality, if you can, if you can write, you can draw. It's just a question of which mode is your brain in? Is it in a symbolic thinking mode or is it in a looking mode? We can talk a little bit more about the difference between symbolic and, and observational thinking patterns, both in programming and in drawing, because I think that there's a lot of things to explore there. It's not that one is better or worse than the other. However, being aware of these two modes of thought can be really powerful, so you can switch between them. And yeah, so the ultimate goal of this exercise was to show that shift of mental modes from symbolic thinking to observational thinking and get people excited about, first of all, discovering that they can in fact draw because everyone can draw and get them thinking about like, hmm, how might this relate to programming? Because I think there might be lots of, like the people who went through this exercise, I think uh, everyone came out of it with their own idea of how this might apply to their practice. I have my own idea. I'm actually curious about what you got from it and how you might apply it to your practice. To be honest, I haven't managed to to transfer to some somewhere of my daily work or so. It's, it's definitely stuck with me, and um, especially what you what you said about um, symbolic. I don't know exactly what you mean with symbolic thinking mode versus looking mode. The uh, simply the idea of that we can somehow shape the way we look at things, and we can purposefully break our way of looking at things or we can break out of the usual way we we look at things the usual way we look at a program can somehow help to get new ideas especially in probably debugging mode but also in in a modeling mode when you try to understand what a specific domain is when you get into a new domain or to a new aspect of your domain that you're programming in then these let's say exercises can surely help. I didn't have the chance yet or I didn't manage to apply them, but I think they're, that's very powerful what you basically said already. So yeah, maybe maybe to to tie that in with what you said um, and to kind of give you the question back is, do, do you have um, any kind of, let's say, more specific 
already transferred programming ideas and approaches how to how to switch modes, whatever these modes specifically are or for sure. So and of course I think everyone has their own debugging practice and people name them in different ways. Also I just want to talk a little bit more about the symbolic thinking versus observational thinking. We've all got this voice in our head that's sort of narrating to us our lives and how we're going through it. And we're very, very much tied to linguistic modes of representation. And the thing about symbolic thinking is it's all about representation. This is a very powerful way of thinking because it allows us to discard a lot of information that might not be significant to the task at hand. It allows us to focus and it allows us to solve problems. Observational thinking, on the other hand, is about removing language from your perception of the world. By removing uh, language and linguistic representations, symbolic representations of the world, you start to see the world differently. For example, if you look at an object, maybe you've got a coffee cup on your table and you recognize it as a coffee cup and you know that you can drink from it, you know that it contains liquid. Imagine stepping back from that understanding, that context of the world, and approaching it from a point of view of no information other than what's presented to you directly. And if you're looking at it as what's presented to you directly, you might not know that there's a use to this coffee cup. You might not even know that it's three-dimensional. You only get the information from your eyes that you've got two views on it. But, w- but what does three-dimensionality even mean? What does coffee mean? What does a cup mean? What does a table mean? What does the air around it mean? All of these things are symbols that we have in our head that we can make sense of. But if we stop making sense of them, what do we see and what kind of relationships can we understand from not knowing the pre-existing symbols of the world? So uh, just to give two sort of senses of what those things are. Now, if we go into something like debugging, let's say you're working on a project that you know really, really well, and uh, you've got a bug, for example, you've got an intermittent bug that's happening. An intermittent is uh, something that happens only now and then, like a test failure that happens every fifth time that you run a test. And you're trying to find out why is this test failing every five times? And you approach it and think like, okay, I know that X, Y, and Z needs to happen. Then ABC will happen next. And you've got this entire model of how the execution tree is being run. But for some reason, there's this intermittent and you keep running the same test over and over again, trying to understand where it's coming from. You have certain theories like, oh, maybe it's coming from a timing condition, from a race condition, or maybe it's coming from something else. But all of your thinking is coming up flat uh, or you're not getting it. You're not getting any further with this intermittent bug. This is one place where observational thinking might be useful because what might be happening when you're trying to debug is you're too concerned with what you already know of the system that you're ignoring signs from the system that would help you debug that thing. This can be a really frustrating moment because you've, you've exhausted everything that you can reason about from what you know about the system and nothing's working. So bring in observational thinking and stop and just try to get as much information, treating your own system that you know really, really well as a black box and trying to get that information out. For example, like just putting debug statements in places where you wouldn't expect anything to go wrong. Or rather than looking at the tail of the stack, looking at the entire stack. Because often bugs happen much higher up in the system than where where they're reported. So you eventually get a report of like, oh, X is undefined. But X was undefined way up in the top of the stack, maybe in a config file or something like this. 
this is something that I think programmers are quite used to doing. Like, you know, eventually you get to that frustrating point. You're like, oh, I really need to solve this. And then we eventually switch into this thing. Okay, I'm just going to debug everything. Arguably, there's an earlier point that we can start doing this. And there's already techniques similar to this observational thinking that exists in computer science. One of them is uh, property-based testing. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with property-based testing, what it is, is rather than testing what you know about the code that you're running, you're testing specific properties about it. For example, let's say you want to test a list, reversing a list. What's a property of reversing a list? Like how can you look at the concept of a list from the outside that when you reverse it twice, you can say that, yes, it's uh, definitely doing what I expect. And one property of that is when you reverse a list once and then you, re you reverse it again, you get the list back in the same order. That's one property. It also has the same length. And you continue to list like, what are the properties that this should be accomplishing that I can observe from the outside in order to say that, yes, this works. And property-based testing has been recently coming up more and more. It's a really powerful technique, but at the same time, you could also say that this is a very exhaustive technique. This is a, this is something that takes a lot of mental energy to do. So I just want to bring back that concept that taking the position of an observer compared to working rationally with symbols, these are complementary techniques that can be used together to help shift thinking to the correct, or rather not correct, but to a different mode that might help solve certain problems. Another place where you might want to use observation much more heavily than uh, working with symbols is something like software architecture. So making decisions about how a system is uh, is built from the ground up. Because let's say that you've solved the same problem multiple times and you've always used the same stack, or maybe there's pressure from the industry or your colleagues to use a specific stack rather than looking at the problem really carefully and saying, what are the features of the problem and how do we solve those features? So again, observing where are we in this moment, like without having any knowledge of like what different technologies are capable of achieving, looking at the problem really carefully and thinking, what's the right solution to this specific problem? And how does it work for this specific domain? How do we solve that thinking really carefully about the space that we're in? So that's how I see this. That's how also I apply it. The intermittent was something that I that I recently worked with. Super, super interesting. Uh, on the one hand, I Sometimes when, when I think about that and what you just said and also what you said at the Socrates exercise session, on the one hand, it's super high level, these concepts that you talk about, symbolic thinking versus um, observational. But at the same time, if you break them down somehow and if you manage to bring them down to, to somehow practical level or apply them on, on a practical level, then they're like everyday everyday things we do and the power in these techniques is probably to be able to use them purposefully like nuts okay now after debugging this intermittent bug for five hours i finally go go on and and really look at everything and throw away my preconceptions about how the code should behave or how the code behaves while when i switch into that mode or yeah purposefully and i know it's there and i It, and it may help in these situations, then that's where this then can really shine and where I can transfer this, this super abstract concept to something. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's what I can work with. So I didn't actually say anything super new or <laughs> I was maybe more just thinking out loud. 
categorizing these as modes, like symbolic mode and observational mode, that's actually like applying symbolic thinking to things that our mind already does. And I think that this is a really powerful aspect of that mode of thinking, that when you can name something, then you can say, oh, I know what this is, and I can switch between these two things. And, you know, maybe there are more. I really quite like that there, this is also the limitation of it in that this whole thing of naming things, it often gets rid of the gray areas. Like there's definitely a gray area between symbolic and observational modes, if we want to call them that. But being, being aware of all of those aspects of this thing and that we also have control over our minds and that we're not necessarily always thinking the same way, like this concept of we are... Well, this, okay, so it gets into really psychoanalytic areas, um, but like, you know, this concept that we are a single ego inside of a body and that we have this oneness with ourselves. This is a much more fragmentary way of thinking. It's like, you're not, you're, you're not coming into this as a, as, you know, a developer named Yulia, for example. Instead, you're coming to this as this thing that can shift and has no solid ground and also can make use of the fact that it has no, a solid form switching between different modes of thinking and becoming kind of a different analytical machine. I find this really, really interesting. I think this is one of the funnest bits about switching between modes of thinking, even though being aware that you can switch between modes of thinking actually reduces the number of modes that you could potentially enter to. Yeah, it's, it's probably also a question or yeah, question of personality. I, I don't know if that's the right word in that context, but from what you just said and categorizing things that are actually about not categorizing other things um, is, is in itself like a like a funny recursion. But yeah, it's, it boils down to me and maybe that's also why, why it was hard for me personally to, to apply what we did at the Socrates session. But when you, when you started talking about these modes, I was reminded of one quote that often comes to my mind. I think it was from, from a philosopher. I'm very unsure and I don't want to Google it right now. I think it was called Hegel. And basically it's the, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And what you said about linguistics being constricting ourselves or limiting ourselves sometimes. And that's also, yeah, it's, it's very much in that quote too. But at the same time, I, it seems like I'm, I'm personally a very much a linguistic person and I can, can't escape these, these, these things. But yeah, what, what you talked about right now also reminded me that, um, when we talked before this podcast, you um, told me about one of your projects that you're working on is called, I think it was JS Better Errors, JavaScript Better Errors. It seems to me these concepts really nicely tie together, um, tie into each other. Yeah. Enabling people who were maybe not used to, or not, um, don't feel comfortable with this highly symbolic language, programming languages, um, how they might still be able to, or get better at programming or get into programming. So is there a connection somehow in, in, in where you can apply that to your work? So. I think what's interesting about programmers who are learning how to code and also this drawing exercise, I think the drawing exercise is really a great example of teaching because it starts from a very, like there's different ways that you can explain things. Uh, you can start really small, like we did with the palm of the hand and then expand out to more complex concepts. And you can also start from like the context of the whole situation and then zoom in on a specific problem. 
I think um, when people are teaching themselves, they're often dealing with like the minutia of a given problem. So the thing about uh, the thing about learning is you can't learn more than what you know plus like ten percent or something like this. You have to have building blocks that you can hook into and climb up uh, in order to make sense of the world. So in a sense, this is if we go back to this language that we developed around symbolic and observational thinking. Um, as a person who's trying to learn a new skill, you need symbols to to be able to reason about what you're learning. You need the building blocks of the thing that you're trying to learn in order to learn it. If you don't have the vocabulary, if you don't know where to look, if you don't know how something works, then you're not going to be able to learn the thing that you're trying to learn. For example, uh, I was recently at a meetup with, his name is escaping me, I remember his first name, Ross. He wrote the book uh, Eloquent Closure, I think. But hopefully this, this will, someone will be able to find this. The, he, he did a really great presentation at the meetup where he gave an anecdote about uh, they were doing um, Ruby on Rails course where you could come and you could try stuff out and they would try to teach you and try to help you build your first app. There was a woman in the back and um, she looked really confused and she was doing the thing that learners do when they don't fully understand a concept where they ask the same question over and over again. I would say this is people trying to get a grip on something, like trying to be able to contextualize a piece of information within the realm of what they what they know and somehow enter it into the body of knowledge they already have. She was really struggling with, with this course and the course was uh, Ruby on Rails. And eventually she said, oh, I get it. Ruby's the language. Rails is a framework. This is a, a really good example of like, putting things in place, like this symbol belongs here and this symbol belongs here and this is how we're talking about them. Now I understand the world. Yeah, there's the this bento exercise at the Rails World Workshop where this that's super awesome, I think, where it helps the learners to categorize, okay, this is a database, this is a language, this is a framework. Uh, this uh, aspect is like really, really important. Being able to re uh, to reason about a set of things and understand what language is being used when people are talking about things. Also, by the way, there's a there's another really great talk by uh, Dr. Feline. Uh, she does a talk called uh, "How Does Code Sound?" And the short version of the of the talk is: When we are reading code, how do we sound it out? Like, what are we saying in our heads when we're reading the code? Let's say you're doing JavaScript and you've written uh, "let x." equals five. And you, you know, for example, what let means and what X means and all these things. But to someone who has never seen these things, uh, they might have a very different set of meanings. And it can be very confusing because they don't have the symbols already in their head where they know what these things are. The purpose of JS Better Errors is to write errors from the perspective that people who do not know the world yet, that they can navigate those errors. And I think two languages that do an excellent job with errors that, that can be navigated, that uh, are being looked at from the outside, are Elm and Rust. So what they both do, and I, I believe this, this first appeared in Elm, but what they do is they show you the line of code as you've written it and where the problem is exactly. Like they show you exactly where things are not working and then they give you a couple of reasons why it might not be working. So I want to bring that kind of error reporting into JavaScript because JavaScript is one of the most ubiquitous languages on the planet. It runs on pretty much every single device you can imagine. And the error messages, depending on which platform you're running it on, will be different. And this can be really, really confusing. And this is, again, this thing where this is essentially 
combining the two ways of thinking, both symbolic and observational. The observational side is thinking from the outside of what we already know and thinking from the perspective of others. And this has to do with empathy and understanding that coding is, an, is a predominantly a social activity. And it also has to do with symbolic thinking, like taking what we know about the symbols in the world, in our world of programming, and transforming that into something that someone who is coming purely from an observational standpoint will be able to understand. Teaching also helps us think in this way. So that's another activity that you could say forces your mind into the observational mode. When you're teaching, you really have to observe the other person, see how they're learning from you and try to understand what they don't know and how to give them that knowledge. I think that like one of the main purposes of debugging tools is an educational purpose. The main, in fact, I would even argue that that's the primary purpose of debugging tools because debugging tools essentially help us understand where we haven't fully understood something, where our model is maybe incorrect, where we might have made a mistake without realizing it. That's super interesting. And yeah, I just needed to write down that very, very insightful, beautiful put definition of debugging of the purpose of debugging. Another thing that we also talked about beforehand and which also ties very nicely into what you told us about better debugging and providing tools that enable us or enable developers to look at their code from, from the outside um, with as few preconceptions as possible is, um, yeah, is compassionate coding. That's also a concept that's getting more and more attention recently. How, how do you see or where do you see parallels there? Or how does it tie into this big concepts that you move around that we talked about? So I think compassionate coding has become sort of a much more solid thing. And I don't think I know enough about it to speak in, at length. But I think one aspect that is being brought up in compassionate coding, and one thing that I'm bringing up is this comp concept of empathy. And recognizing coding as a, as a social activity and recognizing what impact language has on how well other people work and how well we work as a, as a group, as a community, and how well we understand things and how we can move forward. So I, th I kind of want to come to this point of empathy a bit. So you already know that I, I actually did an art degree, not a computer science degree. And one of my theses, I did two theses during my, during my time uh, in university. Uh, one of them was on this concept of the dialogic thinking. And uh, that comes from a, from a book by Mikhail Bakhtin. He's a Russian philosopher. And what he writes about... Uh, in that book, the name is escaping me. It's on the carnivalesque and it's about Gargantua and the carnivalesque is the book. And Bakhtin is writing about how the carnivalesque breaks down certain social roles and inverts certain hierarchies. But it also comes from work that he had done previously on language, which has to do with how people develop languages spontaneously. Spontaneous language develops in situations where two different groups are brought together who have pre-existing language and they're trying to communicate with one another and somehow they do it and they completely invent new languages. A good example of this is Creole. These languages are often referred to as pidgin languages and they're not recognized as true languages or something like this. And he did an entire study about how this works. And this, this impacted my thinking about human relationships and language quite, quite significantly. And it's something that I'm bringing into code. So coming back to the idea of how we are speaking to one another through our code. So if you, 
if you're writing comments in your code or you're writing your code in a way that uh, is only understandable to you, what you're essentially doing is you're coming into a room of people who don't necessarily speak English, for example, and you just are speaking English and expecting everybody to understand. Whereas when you're speaking in a dialogical way, the thing that, uh, that Bakhtin proposes, and he also says that language spontaneously erupts when two people speak to each other. Even if you're both speaking English, you start using words that are specifically meaningful to each other. And conversation, in fact, every conversation has a significant set of symbols that are related, which becomes very complex when it comes to the act of writing and the act of writing books or the act of writing code because you have an unknown audience. So how do you write to that audience in a dialogical way, in a way that there is dialogue? It's an exercise that we can also do, which is we try to speak to each other and not use any words that we, that either of us would recognize and try to create meaning. And what we'll end up doing is we'll start establishing common ground when we write. Common ground can be the context. And that's another thing that Bakhtin uses. He says that context is very important. Building context, using context is very important for creating an environment where people understand each other. So that brings us back to JS Better Errors, which is effectively about taking an error, figuring out what the context is, both for the compiler and for the people writing the code, and making that context explicit so that what is being communicated by the compiler writers, the authors of the engine that, that is running this code, everything that they know is done in a way that first establishes a context, a common ground, that then uh, at whatever level the person who is the person who is uh, writing the code and having the problem in their tool will understand. So that was a very roundabout way of going about talking about empathy, but that's effectively what, what I'm thinking about. Maybe I should do that again because it was so complicated. <laughs> it, it was rich, rich in content. Let's, let's say that way. I don't think it was complicated. It was, was a lot of things to think about and um, very deep. In, in my in my opinion, very very deep, and I, I could have written down, noted down, and I will have the um, ability later. But yeah, could have written down every second sentence, and yeah, that, that's it, that's it, that's perfect. I almost feel like you gave you gave me or you gave this podcast like the perfect headline tagline with what you just set i mean bits of it of course so yeah i feel very 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 honored and I'm, I'm super super happy that you got the time that you invested the time and spent this time with me to to record this podcast which is awesome we, we are already a little bit over our time and so thank you very much julia for taking the time and i hope it was as much fun for you as, for, as it was for me <laughs> for sure thanks for having me Thank you.